Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Birdman, the new film from Alejandro González Iñárritu. Discussing it with me here in the Slate studio in New York are Slate Eminences, Forrest Wickman and David Hagland. Hello. Hello. Hi, Dana. You guys are both, I don't even know what to call you, you're, you're writers and contributors to the Slate Browbeat Culture blog. I would just say editors and writers on the culture side of Slate. Okay. <laughs> it's the simplest description. Also, I thought we were going to do this all in one take. You just retook something, Dana. <laughs> I think we have to leave it in and just go all out. <laughs> My integrity as an artist is shot. Yeah. All right. So Birdman is a movie that uh, I feel like I've talked about every day since I saw it a week and a half ago or so. We did it as a topic on the Culture Gab Fest. Uh, everyone I run into seems to have seen it and have some kind of opinion about it. And uh, and I brought you in today for us because I think you liked it more than David and I do. But whether or not, I think it's a completely successful movie. I do love talking about this movie. So um, let's get into it. Uh, Birdman, where do we start out talking about it? It is um, a film by Inyaritu, the, the guy who made Babel, 21 Grams, Amores Peros, uh, the Mexican Beautiful filmmaker. is the only other movie he made, I think. The Beautiful first three with all, just... all with the same writer, and then since then he's just done Beautiful with Javier Bardem, and then this. Which he wrote himself, Beautiful? I think he co-wrote both that and... Um, this movie. Because I have to say my prior experience with Inyari 2 has not been that positive, especially when he mm-hmm. writes his own movies. I thought Beautiful was really terrible and I'm actually amazed that he's pulled himself enough out of the depths. Like that movie was just the definition of, you know, when you hear about mis- miserableism, right? Yeah. The definition of miserableist filmmaking. And I definitely like this one much, much better. Um, but okay, so let's try to summarize what, what Birdman is. It's a lot of things at once. There's so much going on in this movie. Yeah, the central story is uh, about, and it, the whole movie revolves around this actor named Regan Thompson, who's played by Michael Keaton, who became famous playing a superhero in the movies called Birdman, but he declined to do Birdman 4, and his career seems to have just plummeted after that, although we don't actually get any details about what he's been doing in the meantime. But he's obviously sort of in need of a professional comeback, and has decided to throw all his money into a Broadway adaptation of Raymond Carver. Uh, I never could quite figure out whether it's just the story uh, what we talk about when we talk about love or a collection of stories with that as the title story. Anyway, uh, so he's he's put everything into this stage adaptation, but he's obviously uh, on the verge of some kind of mental breakdown and the movie opens with him levitating, um, although we are later, and we later see him do other superhero-like things, but we are given to understand throughout most of the movie that these are hallucin- hallucinations of a sort. Or at least it remains inherently Im- like no one else sees what he sees. Right. And, and I think ultimately yeah. we should, I mean, I'm, eventually we'll get to the ending and talk about that because I think it throws a little bit of a bone in all of this. Right. So even though stuff. the movie is, is, it looks as though it's all one take, uh, lots of, you know, weeks probably pass, uh, or at least a couple, uh, a week or a couple of weeks, uh, as they get the play ready, they um, add this new actor played pretty wonderfully by uh, Edward Norton, um, who's this really kind of, you know, uh, self-serious stage actor. Uh, They they get it all together, and then the movie culminates um, on opening night, and then we see a little bit of the aftermath. That's the, the basic story. Right. And I guess, I mean, I just picking something out of what you just said. So you could say that the movie takes place in, in real space, but not real time, which is kind of unusual, right? I mean, we, we seem at least to be moving through a continuous space at all times. But sometimes, for example, the sun will rise and set in fast motion, you know, as we pan past the sky. And so, you know, a day has passed or the rehearsals are at a completely different phase. So obviously, as you say, a week or so might have passed. And that the way that it plays with time in that way, I thought was really cleverly done. And 
from a formal standpoint, I mean, I think we would all agree it's kind of a dazzling accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. There <laughs> no. were times. Yeah. Spora stares at me in dead silence. Go ahead, Forrest. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so I had, I think uh, where we all essentially are on this movie is um, that we're not really sure whether it adds up too much or is as smart as it thinks it is. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. However, I think maybe I just enjoyed it more. I came out of the movie like, uh, I don't really know what that was saying. And some of, some parts of it really bothered me. Like, I really enjoyed it as an experience. But it also is almost, it's like a, it's a satire. And in many senses, kind of like a piece of criticism. And I thought as a piece of criticism, it was pretty bad. Um, criticism of, of, of what? Uh, well, so it seems to, so the... Uh, David established the plot very well. Thematically, a lot of what's going on is this battle between um, sort of strict realism, as represented by Edward Norton and the theater. And, and Raymond Carver. And Raymond Carver. And uh, the movies, and superhero movies in particular, uh, which is represented by Michael Keaton's character, more specifically the sort of Birdman um, figure who kind of haunts him, um, and these things are set in opposition to each other and then kind of exploded over the, especially in the third act when this movie, which had been a backstage drama, kind of takes off and has its main character flying through New York City. Right. So this is something else we haven't mentioned is that besides the guy that he sees in his dressing room, which I would argue is kind of a standard superhero, right? It happens in Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire where your sort of your evil double appears and speaks to you. That seems standard. But there are these other magical realist touches that do seem to to make that Gabriel Garcia Marquez jump where you yeah. honestly don't know what the laws are, the physical laws of the universe you're in. He flies at one point. Um, you know, there's a moment that you don't know if he's going to jump off a building and commit suicide and commit suicide. And then he proceeds to fly to the theater. Right. This is late in the movie. And I guess my question, especially when it gets into, you know, some of these life or death questions near the end is, you know, to what extent are we meant to be left in complete suspension? And is it dramatically effective for us not to know whether these things are happening because he's dead, because he's crazy, because he's fantasizing about them? Or I thought the, I, I found it much less ambiguous than that until the ending, which we'll, of course, discuss. But I thought that the movie went out of its way to make clear multiple times that this was all in his mind. And so, for instance, in that scene where he seems to be flying to the theater, then you watch him get out of a cab. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of shift and you think, oh, okay, he, in his mind he was flying, but actually he just got in a cab. There's another moment where he seems to be um, moving objects in his, uh, you know, what do you call the green room for actors, right? Backstage, he's, he's in his dressing room, room right? Yeah. yeah, he can perform telekinesis, he, right? He appears to, but then Zach Galifianakis, who plays his agent and longtime friend, this kind of, you know, funny role that I think he does well... He comes in and you see that Riggin Thompson is just throwing things yeah, around. Yeah, he's just yeah. trashing things old school, yeah. rock star style. So I thought those moments very clearly set up for us that, that he's hallucinating and that he doesn't have superpowers. He's, right. You know. um, and then there's this ending moment where he jumps out the window and, and that, that is left sort of ambiguous or is different than those other scenes. Yeah, I mean, I would love to talk about this ending, which is something that people have not really been able to talk about in reviews. I had the same impression up until that point that you did, David, that, oh, clearly this guy is having a nervous breakdown and he is just hallucinating all of this. And then uh, the last shot, I mean, you can't really say shot, uh, the last (laughs) image of the movie, as I recall, is one of the first times where another character seems to see Birdman doing something magical. So basically he comes up to this windowsill and then he 
steps off the ledge, and we don't see what happens. And then um, his daughter comes in, the, Played by uh, Emma Stone. the Emma Stone character, and looks down. I mean, tell me if you perceived any of this differently, but she looks down, she seems to be confused or to not see anything, looks up and then smiles, um, which also, to me, I think calls back to the first shot of the movie, which I think actually is a distinct shot, um, which is this image of a sort of phoenix flying through the sky. And it's not really situated in any other context, but to me, I was, think that's probably that what Emma Stone from sees. I thought that was supposed to be sort of like an image of the actual movie, the Birdman movies, and, and him, you know, making a fiery. I think it's possible. I think that's possible. Oh, yeah, but I think the I think that you're the the larger point with regard to the ending is that the fairly clear implication is that she has looked up and seen him flying through the right. sky. Right. And as Forrest was so pointing out, mean? Emma Stone, who's, as a veteran of superhero movies herself, it's not the first time that she's looked smilingly up at a flying man in the sky. Yeah. Um, right. And in fact, just briefly, um, you know, the, the point has been made that uh, Inuritu seems to have deliberately cast people from superhero movies. Right. So Edward Norton was the Hulk, uh, obviously Keaton, Emma Stone. Um, and that, that seems possibly deliberate. But I... I think that that ending and the ambiguity there also gets at this larger thematic ambiguity that is slightly, I wish was more interesting to me uh, about the movie, which is what is what is it actually saying, if anything, or what is its attitude about superhero movies? Because like Forrest said, it's a satire and it's satirizing superhero movie culture in some ways and, and, and various actors get name checked Robert Downey Jr., Michael Fassbender, etc. None of them are available to, to, to be in this play because they're all doing you know, dumb superhero movies is the implication. Uh, however, the, the theater project is also a, really a, an object of satire, yeah. I think, in this movie. It's made to kind of look ridiculous and so, but yet it's valued, right? I mean, I think that right. there is a trajectory that the Regan Thompson, the Keaton character, makes and I think it's a flaw in the movie that we don't know what to make of the Raymond Carver play. We don't know whether it's any good or not. We don't, we're not really allowed, sort of given the, the context about which to form an opinion about whether it's good. And that seems important because it is in some ways a redemption narrative for Regan Thompson. And we have to know whether his project is an artistic success or not. The right. audience seems to love it. But so then are we supposed to think they're dupes? Yeah, and the critic also ends up giving it this rave after saying that she's going to pan it just because she doesn't like him and doesn't like celebrities coming to Broadway. But she seems to rave about it in part because, and here's another spoiler, Regan Thompson uh, shoots himself in the face at the end of the, the play. He intends to kill himself, but manages only to shoot off his nose. He's doing a staged suicide in the play, right? And he puts yeah. a real bullet in his gun. Yeah, right. And, and uh, it's a horrifying... You know, moment if you think about it at all, in as an as a real moment. Uh, but he but he lives, and then we see him in the hospital, and she says that you know she refers to blood on Broadway in these kind of rapturous terms, and in terms that I think we're supposed to understand are fairly ridiculous. Her prose is preposterous and seems dumb, and her whole character is is dubious from the start. So I I didn't know either whether we're supposed to think the play is good, whether we're supposed to think that there's any kind of value or virtue in superhero movies. In theory, one could see the movie as striking some kind of middle ground where, you know, the kind of pompousness of the kind of typical superhero movie is no good, but the sort of prestige-hungry quality of a play like this is also not to be taken at face value. And there's some... Um, 
real joy to be found in a pleasurable movie. So when he's flying through the sky, that's that's filmed, I think, pretty sincerely with a score that's kind of soaring, and, and you're supposed to be swept up in that. Yeah, I uh, had trouble making sense of this movie, but the most sense I could make of it was that it was setting up those two things in opposition, having mostly at least scorn for them both. And we should say that, you know, I haven't read a lot of interviews with Inuritu, but it's been kind of hard to avoid this headline that uh, he's referred to superhero movies as cultural genocide. Um, I believe that's the exact yeah, quote. I think, yeah, I think so. Um, so... I don't know how much ambiguity there is about how he feels about superhero movies. To me, I saw him as having scorn for each of these two extremes and then kind of holding this movie and himself, and this is part of why the movie rubbed me the wrong way, holding this movie and himself up as like the third way, like the way to do it as, uh, you know, you can kind of go for substance and be exciting at the same time. Um, yeah, I which, think there's a lot of self-love in this movie. It seems yeah. to me like the Regan Thompson character is a stand-in for Inyaritu. And in some ways that you could say that that means he's making fun of himself because there's a lot of satire of that Michael Keaton character. But ultimately, I think there is a redemption and an affirmation. Whether or not he's really flying at the end, I hope he really is. Because if not, the rest of the redemption plot makes no sense. But he seems to have sort of made amends with his daughter and his ex-wife and started to realize that he was living his life in a, in a vain and petty and shallow way all these years that he was grasping back for his Birdman fame. All that happens in, it's toward those last scenes after he shoots himself in the face. And if the case is simply that he then jumped out the window and committed suicide and betrayed all those people, then it's a very sour ending to the movie that I don't think could have been the intent. Can we, can we talk about that last image again a little more then? Because I don't understand. Um, I think the meaning of the ending is very ambu- ambiguous and almost just baffling to me. But what actually happens at the at the in the last image of the movie, I don't see any other way to interpret it other than that that like, he committed he flies. suicide. No, that that he flies. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm how, with you, of course. How I mean, how else do we make sense of uh, the Emma Stone's face, the right. expression that she gives, except for that Birdman is flying? Un- unless you re- took the movie as an incredibly dark satire in which it's mocking us with that image of her looking up. But that, I think you'd have to really stretch, right? We've never, there's no setup for another character doing something outside of a basically realist mode prior to that, right? Every time we see a character do something other than Michael Keaton's character, we're, I think, supposed to interpret it at face value. Yeah. So why would we do anything different with the final shot? In which case, she's looking up at him flying right? in the sky. But if she is, and if then in some way the bird man, the dark alter ego that's been hounding him the whole time is being affirmed as a good thing, something that enables him as an artist and a, and a flyer, <laughs> then, then, what about, then what are we to make of all those scenes where the bird man was a dark devil on his shoulders, you know, trying, to bring, trying to bring him to the dark side of you know, going back to Hollywood and caring about his image and his looks and all of that? It's just, I think it's a little bit morally muddled. In yeah, way. well, and it gets to this, this larger question of whether Inuritu has any... <laughs> As any sincere thing to say in general, that his movies in the past have been, uh, I saw the phrase in Chris Orr's review, um, he referred to them as bullying profundities. And that seems about right. I mean, they sort of beat you over in their head with their, with their, with their grand meanings. And it seems like he's sort of doing that again with this movie, but then pulling the rug out from under himself in a way that doesn't actually feel meaningful. Yeah, so very quickly, I mean, that's how I felt uh, very much, except for... 
um, the closest I could come to making sense of that is that this movie reminded me of adaptation in a lot of ways and that it's about the expectations of Hollywood versus the truth of real life and how to resolve those things against each other. And the ending of adaptation it, it reminded me of this. They remind me of each other and that at the end, it seems like the movie just like gives you the Hollywood version. It's like, we know this is what you people want. Um, and so, you know, while at the end of adaptation, he's like fighting crocodiles in the swamps and stuff at the end of this, it's like, okay, here's your superhero movie the end right um so that's the closest i could come to making sense of it well we have someone else who needs to use the studio i wish we could continue but i wanted to hear really quickly david that you had a reception theory about this movie and how critics have responded to it and audiences have responded yeah well i've seen the movie described as divisive and polarizing uh because it's gotten some reviews that are clearly presented as raves and others that are there's one um, by scott tobias in the dissolve that opens by saying that in yari two he now realizes is a total fraud and in fact, having read a bunch of them now, I think people seem to actually agree about this movie, that that on a technical level, it's virtuosic and dazzling, and intellectually, it doesn't seem to add up to much. Right. And so I, and it's I think almost we all agree with that, I too. I would agree with yeah. that. I think that was the thrust of my review as well. I mean, I think if you had to sort of hand an Oscar to anyone for this movie, it would be Emmanuel Lubezki, the cinematographer, and not Inyaritu, who engineered the entire story. Right. And maybe Ed Norton. Yeah, and Ed Norton I'd give is fantastic. him one too. He's on a roll between this and, and Moonrise Kingdom. He's just yeah. he's been so funny in all his roles lately. Okay, I'm sorry we have to wrap it up, guys. Thanks for coming in to discuss Birdman. Let's do it again soon. Thanks, Dana. Thanks. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.